Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to the Eastern Border Goes to Cuba, part two. Last time we looked at some general tips about Cuba, retro cars, money, business and cigars. I hope you enjoyed that and tuned in also this week. A quick note though, uh, it seems I was wrong about the US regulations on bringing in cigars from Cuba. While I was under the impression that it is completely and totally illegal, I recently read that now Americans can bring cigars from Cuba for personal use. Some people on TripAdvisor even claim to have brought back as much as 11 boxes. So, sorry for the misinformation. But anyway, this time I will tell you a bit more about the Cuban climate, politics and especially the effects of socialism, again some practical tips and also some stories about food and art. As well as last time, I'm giving you but a small insight into this country because I only got a small insight myself. Tourists are treated very differently than locals. And I guess it's understandable because tourism is the main driving force of the Cuban economy at the moment, which is only now starting to recover from the disaster that the collapse of the Soviet Union brought. So I made it a resolution to myself to go back after a while, hopefully speaking fluent Spanish, to discover another real Cuba. But more on that later in the episode. First, let's talk about the weather. When we arrived on the 26th of December, it was hot like a proper good Latvian summer, and it stayed warm throughout our stay there, approximately 26 degrees Celsius, which is 75 for people who use Fahrenheit. We were in Cuba during its cold and dry season, which lasts from November till mid-April. Then comes the summer, or the hot and wet season. Our guide said that summer is really hard for Cubans. The temperatures rise above 35 degrees Celsius, which is close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And she said that with the humidity, it just feels like you're permanently in a sauna. Unsurprisingly, tourism is booming in Cuba in winter months. Even in its coolest months, we found the climate hard to handle at times. Unless you are used to tropical climates, prepare to have your hair permanently glued to your head, as well as an overall sticky feeling during your visit in Cuba. And I cannot stress this enough, always bring water 
anywhere you go. But while it is hard on humans, the Cuban climate is wonderful for all kinds of wildlife and plants. We went to a wonderful place called the Saroa Botanical Garden, which is famous for having 700 different types of orchids. The garden is located about one hour outside of Havana. It is on a hill and offers a really nice walk through its many terraces. It was developed by a man named Thomas Camacho in memory of his daughter who died at the age of 21 during childbirth and of his wife whose favorite flowers were orchids. After Camacho died, there was nobody to inherit the park, so it was given to the Cuban government. A gardener, who was also our guide for the day, told us that the Cuban air is so clean and full of moisture that they hardly ever have to water any of the plants. Apart from the orchids, there were also other types of exotic trees and flowers that I had never seen before. For anyone who is interested in decorative plants, if there's anyone out there who is interested in decorative plants, I recommend checking out the bromeliad plant family. I didn't know this before, but this is the family to which pineapples belong to. But it also produces many other types of colorful and great-looking plants. Bromeliad plants are easy to care for and require no special tools or fertilizers as far as I know. And my favorite one is called the ananas ananasoides. It produces the tiniest pineapples you will ever see that are not edible, but I think would be an interesting and unique interior element. At least for people for whom the closest they get to tropics is a trip to the fruit aisle in a supermarket. Speaking of which, I thought it was funny that our guy pointed out with such enthusiasm some pine trees along the way. For Cubans, these trees that we have on every corner in Latvia are a real rarity. On the other hand, she thought it was funny when, after trying the delicious carambola juice, I told her that sadly in Europe these star-shaped fruits are sold only one by one and not in kilos. You know what I'm talking about, right? The little green fruits whose slices look like stars and that are often used in cake decorations, at least where I'm from. There is truly an abundance of tropical fruit in Cuba, which I found so unfair. But at the same time, our guide could not believe that my grandma in Latvia had to leave some tons of apples on the fields this year because we had run out of ways to process them. She told us that next time we should send all of our apples to her because in Cuba they cost up to two CUC each. So I guess everything is in balance. I had read before going to Cuba that because it was closed to tourists for so long, the island profited greatly in terms of ecological preservation. But unfortunately, just like everywhere in the world, climate changes can also be felt in Cuba now. Our guide told us that it's becoming increasingly hotter and drier. If some years ago everybody planted tobacco in September, now the planting season has extended until and beyond February. Quite a significant change. Also, water is becoming an issue as the tanks that people install in their homes to collect rainwater are no longer filling up during rain seasons because there's no rain. Also, the hurricanes are becoming more frequent and violent. The last major one to hit Cuba was Irma in September of 2017. It claimed the lives of 10 people as well as an estimated $513.3 million in damages. Of course, also it had a big impact on the wildlife. In Cayo Coco, which was the home of the largest flamingo colony that upon our arrival we failed to see, Irma killed several thousands of the pink birds. Another place where unfortunately I failed to go is the island called Cayo Largo, where I wanted to see a sea turtle hatchery. 
We were in Cuba during the New Year's holidays, which are a few days longer for them than they are for us, so it was not possible for us to arrange a trip to the island. But still, for those who are interested, there's a man on the island of Cayo Largo who saves sea turtle eggs from the beaches, where because of tourism it's becoming more and more dangerous for them. You see, sea turtles have this kind of natural GPS built into them, which makes the females always lay their eggs on the same beach that they themselves were born on. They remember the smell of the sand forever, and this is what guides them when it's time to lay eggs. In the time that Cuba was close to tourism, the beaches were undeveloped, and it was a perfect place for sea turtles to breed. But if earlier the little turtles were endangered because of wild animals and poachers, who, by the way, make them into food, apparently turtle eggs is a huge delicacy in Cuba, but now there are also temperature changes and commercial development that creates problems. Street lamps and plastic chairs can become deadly traps for these little turtles, who have to make a run for the sea after hatching. So, the man that I wanted to meet collects these eggs and then replaces them exactly as they were on his property. Then he lets the turtles hatch there and raises them in little pools until they're big enough to go into the sea. I learned about him because of a documentary I watched and I really wanted to meet him to give him my compliments. But maybe next time. While I did not try everything that the Cuban cuisine has to offer, especially the sea turtle eggs, I have to give a special mention to the relatively cheap and very, very good food that Cuba provides. So restaurants are one of the scenes where you can get the dual nature of Cuban business. There are government-run restaurants where the price for one meal varies between 5 to 12 CUC, and then there are the private restaurants which set their own prices, but mostly we still found them very affordable. If you're not into restaurants, you can also buy street food, like hamburgers and such, for a couple of local pesos in the street. In my guidebook, it was written that tourists often do not want to try street food because they think it's unhygienic. However, it also said that it's not the case, because private enterprises, which are these little street food kiosks, are usually subject to much higher regulations than the government stores. I have to say that it is indeed a little bit off-putting to see burgers and fried chicken sweating away in the windows of these little kiosks, but nevertheless, on a couple of occasions, I tried them and nothing bad happened, and actually they were quite delicious. In the end, the food served in restaurants does not always excel in looks either. We were especially surprised by the breakfast buffets of hotels. While we tried some cafes and street food for breakfast, mostly we decided in favor of buffets that were found in hotels. The prices of breakfast that we had in these hotels varied from 8 CUC to 22 CUC per person, but you could also find some that were much more expensive than that. The most expensive one that we had was indeed worth the money. The service was great and we were greeted with welcome cocktails and left feeling like we truly treated ourselves. But it also happened that we paid 13 CUC per person only to discover a sorry selection of food that included grayish sausages and what looked like yesterday's french fries and damp cereal. This was in one of those hotels that sadly looked like they had survived an apocalypse. So for tourists, breakfast in Cuba is a gamble. But we never had any problems dinner-wise, though. For not a lot of money, we ate extremely well the whole week. Traditional Cuban food includes some sort of meat, usually pork, fish or chicken, and boiled or fried root vegetables, as well as rice with black beans, which I absolutely loved. 
Honestly, I can only say good things. I discovered a root vegetable called malaga, which I will definitely try to hunt down once back in Glasgow. It resembles a potato, but the taste is a little bit more sweet and earthy at the same time. I'm a really big fan. If you are wondering why there's no beef on the menu, it is because in Cuba it is illegal to kill cows for meat. Before the revolution, cattle raising was a profitable business in Cuba, but now Cubans joke that one gets into less trouble for killing another Cuban than for accidentally running over a cow. The reason is because cows now are a very precious source of dairy, and according to my guide, the beef you get in Cuba is most surely imported. Interestingly, despite the embargo, we found Coca-Cola and many other American products on sale. Upon closer inspection, we saw that most of them were imported from Mexico. Speaking of import and things you can buy, I have to say that going to a Cuban shop was one of the biggest culture shocks for me. Some shops were completely empty. Others, fuller ones, had only one type of brand for every product. And again, I couldn't figure out the price logic. A liter of rum of Havana Club costs 4 CUC, which is slightly less than the box of pasta sauce that you can get for 430 CUC. My dad said that the lines in front of the shops and the small selection is similar to what he lived through in his youth, but I could see that even he was shocked. What's more, I expected a cheap country, but while in a restaurant for 5 CUC you get a chicken, two side dishes so big that you can't even finish your meal, in a shop, you cannot find beer cheaper than 150 CUC. And for comparison, in a supermarket in Latvia, you can get a beer for sometimes a little bit less than a euro, sometimes just a little bit over a euro. So in Cuba, prices were higher than where we're from. At the same time, a glass of rum costs 30 cents in a restaurant or a cafe. You make with what you have. Still, a cold beer was much needed after these long hot promenades in the city. And when I asked around why was beer so expensive, I learned that we had come to Cuba during a national beer shortage. And there you have another thing completely inimaginable for capitalistic societies. Shortages. In this case, the problem was that Cubans had bought too much beer in order to stock up in case of a shortage that they actually created a shortage, because the national beer company could not keep up with the demand. For us this was bad, because we had to drink some of the most expensive beer ever, unless for US people, your beer is very very expensive compared to where we're from. However, as I later learned, the beer shortage in Cuba was far from the end of the world. Our guide told us that a year ago, due to a cargo ship being stopped in the Panama Channel, there was no toilet paper to be found anywhere in Cuba for months. Now that I would not want to live through. Because even without the shortage, there is a very prominent toilet paper deficit in Cuba. In some places, like hotels, airports, restaurants, there is just none of it, and you are lucky that your smart guide took a roll with her on the excursion. In other places, you have to pay one CUC to wipe your butt. That's the way it is. Water is also not sold everywhere. So quickly, we learned the logic behind stocking up on things. We also read before going to Cuba that bringing small gifts is very much appreciated. It seemed very strange to me at first to see our guide so happy to receive a gift box with some toiletries and a nice towel. But during my whole stay in Cuba, I did not see a single towel for sale. 
Also, upon our arrival, our host proudly presented to us a shelf of what later turned out to be almost empty shampoo bottles. Among other gift options that I read about were electronics, clothes, especially for babies, toys and books. What's most troubling that all of these can still be considered luxury items, but shortages also affect medicine supplies. The BBC reports that, off the record, some doctors and nurses will say that infections inside hospitals is a significant problem, as well as even now they don't always have enough resources to help everybody, so families are often required to bring in things such as sheets and pillows, as well as some basic antibiotics for their loved ones who are in hospitals. It's a very humbling experience in many ways, and it definitely made me appreciate what I have in Europe. Going to a supermarket in the Bahamas right after Cuba was completely overwhelming. It's crazy to think that the distance from Havana to Nassau is only a couple of hundred of miles, but it felt like a whole world, perhaps even two apart. Of course, we were more than just a little curious, but also a bit wary to ask the locals to give their opinions on Cuba, their lifestyle, and especially politics. But before we get into discussing what they said, I thought I'd provide a little bit of context about the history of Cuba and the revolution. So, Cuba was discovered by Columbus in 1942. From there, its history resembles that of a lot of other Spanish colonies. There was slavery, economic exploitation, and it remained mostly under Spanish control until the Spanish-American War in 1898. After Spain lost, Cuba remained under American influence until it sort of gained its independence in 1902. Sort of is important here, because it is what caused the revolution to start brewing. The problem was that while Cuba was formally independent, the US still had a big influence on the Cuban politics and economics. American companies pretty much dominated Cuban economics because they owned its sugar industry. Guantanamo Bay became a US military base, and there was a clause written into the Cuban constitution that gave the US the rights to organize a military intervention at any moment to quote-unquote preserve Cuban independence. And during the time between the formal Cuban independence and the revolution of 1959, there was a lot of instability in Cuba. The U.S. intervened two times and threatened to do so many times more, and the U.S. would also push for policies that benefited their economic interests. The last man to govern Cuba before the revolution was Fulgencio Batista. He had been elected president from 1940 till 1944, but then later he seized power in a military coup in 1952. He inherited a country that was relatively prosperous for Latin America at the time. Although a third of the country's population still lived in poverty, in the 1950s Cuba's gross domestic product per capita was roughly equal to that of Italy at the time. The workers' wages rose during Batista's regime, and it was said to be among the highest in the world. However, in 1953, a fifth of the labor force was chronically unemployed, and only a third of the homes had running water. Organized crime and corruption flourished. At the same time, Batista's regime was very violent and oppressive. He suspended the constitution and revoked many political liberties. State media censorship was imposed, and so was torture and public executions of those who opposed him. It is estimated that over 20,000 people were killed. If you go to Havana, the last relic of Batista's regime is the great statue of Jesus called the Christ of Havana. 
It is a 20 meters or 66 feet high monument carved out of Carrara marble and overlooks the Bay of Havana. It was commissioned by the wife of President Batista in 1953 to a Cuban sculptor called Hilma Madera. The aim of the wife was to honor God in hopes of him ensuring that her husband will stay in power. The monument was inaugurated on La Cabana Hill on December 24, 1958. And, as irony would have it, a week later, the revolution. If you look at Jesus' facial features, you see that the artist tried to make him a little bit more Cuban than we have traditionally made Jesus in Europe. But the Cubans joke that she probably overdid it a little, because the hand placement of Jesus looks like he's holding a cigar in one hand and a mojito in another. Anyway, back to the history. All of these factors I mentioned, the political instability, violence, the American political and economic control, corruption and organized crime, fueled the revolutionary movement that officially began on July 26, 1953, when a small group of rebels attacked the Moncada Barracks in Santiago. Their attack was unsuccessful, and they, along with their leader Fidel Castro, were jailed for 15 years but released in 1955 because they gained political amnesty. Four years later, on the 1st of January 1959, after Batista had been convinced by the U.S. government to step down and flee the country, the rebels took over Cuba, and they would stay in power until 2018. The Netflix documentary series that I mentioned last time called The Cuba Libra Story is an interesting watch that I recommend for those who want to get a better understanding of Cuban history. What I found particularly interesting is that it features interviews with former revolutionaries, and it seems that in the beginning, the revolution in Cuba was not at all intended to be a socialist one. The US were worried that Castro was too left in his politics because he expropriated foreign oil company holdings and eventually seized all foreign-owned property in Cuba. But it is not right to assume that wanting Cubans to have control over their own economy strictly means a desire for communism. Castro declared that he is Marxist-Leninist only in 1962, three years after the revolution. In the documentary, some revolutionaries admit to not having had any idea of what socialism was and what it stood for at the time of fighting. It is also implied in the documentary that while Che Guevara and Raul Castro were indeed left-leaning in their politics, Fidel initially was not. But as we know, down the line, Cuba allied itself with the Soviet Union and became a socialist country, which it continues to be today. I think it is important to note that looking at the documentary evidence of Cubans cheering for Fidel, one might get the impression that people were overwhelmingly happy with the changes that he brought. And while in some cases it might be true, it is important to remember that his revolution was also a bloody and violent one. While exact numbers are impossible to get, Thousands of people were executed without a trial. I have seen numbers online that range from around 10,000 to 70,000 to 150,000 people. In 2006, the New York Times reported 9,240 catalog deaths and called Castro a brazen liar, especially about his own regime. In 2005, the Wall Street Journal reported 14,000 dead. In that article, they also inserted a quote from the Inter-American Human Rights Commission, which sends shivers down my spine. It reads as follows. On May 27, 1966, 166 Cubans, civilians and members of the military were executed and submitted to medical procedures of blood extraction of an average of 7 pints per person. 
This blood was sold to communist Vietnam at a rate of $50 per pint, with the dual purpose of obtaining hard currency and contributing to Viet Cong communist aggression. A pint of blood equals half a liter. Extracting this amount of blood from a person causes cerebral anemia and a state of unconscious and paralysis. Once the blood is extracted, the person is taken by two militiamen on a stretcher to the location where the execution takes place. So, there is a side to the Cuban Revolution that does not appear in any of the revolutionary posters plastered all over Havana, and also that the Cubans won't tell you about. Just something to keep in mind. On this sad and sinister note, let's take a short break. And welcome to the mid-segment. I hope you are enjoying this little deviation from the traditional format of the eastern border. If you do, and if you don't, please let us know in the comments on our webpage, Facebook, or send us a message. If you would like to join the people who are supporting our show, go to patreon.com slash the eastern border or to our website to find out how you can do so. We also have a Discord server where we can engage with you guys directly, so don't forget to check that out as well. In personal news, after surviving an insect bite that turned my right arm into a sausage for days, I will be returning to the UK soon, so the next episode you will hear will be stuff you're used to. I think Kristaps is preparing another Stalin episode. Alright, that's enough chit-chat, let's get back to Cuba. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. While the Cubans were happy to talk to me and answer most of my questions, some topics such as Fidel were off-limits and others were discussed in lowered voices, but in general the mood was neutral and less negative and constrained than I had anticipated. Then again, I could only communicate with Cubans who were relatively well off, which means they spoke foreign languages and worked in the tourism sector at least in some way. This means that they live much better than the Cubans who can only earn their income in Cuban pesos. We all agreed that socialism has a lot of flaws. Our guide told us that because of welfare a lot of people do not want to work and that services that are owned by the government are usually low quality because people working there just don't care as much as they would if the businesses were private. I am not sure about the accuracy of this opinion. While it is true that some private restaurants, for example, did seem a bit more put together and taken care of than those owned by the government, sometimes it was quite the opposite, and a lot of times we were surprised by the hospitality of government-run restaurants or shops. In general, taking care of things I guess is what I missed most when I was in Cuba. The sorry state of my surroundings in Havana, as I understand were partly due to the flood that had hit Havana in September, and the Hurricane Irma in 2017, but still. 
While the touristy parts were impressive and picturesque, in general Havana is quite dirty and I don't think it's always a matter of financial possibility, but rather a matter of willingness. I was surprised to see the mistreated marble stairs and run-down houses that would gain so much from even a couple of hours of cleaning. When I asked our host why not hire the people from the community to help renovate his house, he quickly changed the subject and never really answered my question. On the flip side, the Cubans themselves always look super put together and stylish. It was a strange contrast to see them rocking white sneakers and perfect hairdos coming in and out of houses that look like they're going to collapse any minute. Outside, these same people hang out next to trash rotting away in streets and just don't seem to care. Even though the smell sometimes makes your insides jump. Then again, treating the streets as a giant trash can is also common in Scotland sometimes, so I'm not really sure if that has much to do with socialism. All in all, things are changing in Cuba now. They have a new president whose name is Miguel Diaz-Canel Bermudez, and people who we talked to seem to like him okay, even though there was not much choice offered from the country who still has only one legal political party. Mostly we heard praises of Raul Castro, which was unexpected for me. Our host described him coming to power like a breath of fresh air for the Cuban people. He was the one who allowed Cubans to start renting out their houses to tourists and to own small businesses. He also allowed Cubans to purchase cell phones and personal computers, which is, wow, he allowed that in 2008, before owning a cell phone was a luxury reserved for those working for foreign firms or those who held high posts within or in direct relation to the government. What? Raul also made traveling a little bit easier for Cubans. Our host said that Raul kept all of his promises, among which the most important one was that he left power in 2018. And um, the stories about what life was like in Cuba in the wake of the fall of the USSR were truly heartbreaking. The island's economy had depended heavily on the USSR for years. The subsidies were measured in millions per day. Cuba mostly imported all of their products from the USSR and thus acquired a huge debt. After the collapse, Cuba wanted to continue to trade and keep up their agreements, but Yeltsin told Castro to first pay their billions in debt, which of course Cuba could not do. From 1991 to around 1994, or what Fidel called the special period, times were very hard and people that I met did not like to talk much about that. During the time, the citizens of the country were put on a ration system and everyday conveniences disappeared overnight. We learned that they had electricity for a couple of hours a day and everyone could only get one small piece of bread per day. From other sources, I learned that shortages got so bad that hospitals were reusing gloves until they broke and they did not have sufficient facilities to sterilize the syringes. And I'm not sure that this is not the case now, because, as I mentioned before, diseases are still quite common in the hospitals. I hope it's not the same. I really, really hope it's gotten better. Builders could not obtain materials, blackouts were common, and people were starving. Even farmers who were not touched by the changes of revolution early on were now suffering because of people stealing their crops and eating their livestock. Now things seem to be better, and everyone we talked to agreed that there's hope. People complained about low wages, which is what we also do all the time too, 
But still, I was shocked that the most prestigious profession that you can have in Cuba is a surgeon, and that earns you 67 CUC a month. And then the taxi driver makes the same amount in one hour of work. I found that really hard to wrap my head around. Opening the country for tourism was a huge boost to the Cuban economy, and if you talk to people selling plates and other stuff at tourist markets, you get to know former engineers, scientists and doctors. All of these former specialists say that they gave their careers up because they wanted to take control of their lives and just live better, or in some cases, just survive. Bizarrely, Cuba has one of the highest doctors-to-citizens ratio and constantly sends their doctors on missions to provide medical assistance to countries in need. But so many people said that it's not worth studying so long and then be so severely underpaid, which I understand completely. But I guess not everything is bad. At the same time, the utilities are very low, healthcare is completely free, and so is education, even in universities. And education and healthcare, in the words of the BBC, are the two pillars of the Cuban revolution. A Cuban citizen, Rosa Caridad, was quoted in an article by the BBC, saying that the greatest thing for a country is not food or clothes, it is health and education, and we get both of them for free. I don't know if this is true, but I was also told by our guide that in case a child is born somewhere in the mountains with no schools around, the Cuban government will build a school for that child alone and assign a teacher who for 12 years will ensure that that child is properly educated in all subjects. And according to a World Bank study of Latin America and the Caribbean quoted in that same article from the BBC, Cuba ranked first in maths and science at all school grades and for both males and females. Despite every school day starting with young Cubans shouting out, we will be like Che, none of the friends that I made in Cuba actually want to be like Che. Mostly, they dream of going abroad. In other news, some Cubans are even getting Wi-Fi installed now. It is not cheap though, and mostly Cubans still get Wi-Fi from the government. Internet was only introduced throughout Cuba in the middle of 2015, and to access it, you have to buy that little card that I mentioned in the last episode, and that gives you one hour of access. In the hotel of Cayo Coco, such a card cost one CUC. I don't know what the price for that was in Havana, but judging by the amount of Cubans sitting in parks with their heads in their phones and these little cards out, I imagine that it's more or less affordable. Our host also tried to give us a SIM card which apparently had 3G on it. But honest to God, I still don't know what he meant by it's free. Was the card free? Because the internet did not look like it was free. And paying 30 euros for 4 gigabytes for one week seemed not worth it to us. So we limited ourselves to super slow and sometimes very fast Wi-Fi in our Casa Particular, which came on at odd hours of the day. Our guide speculated that maybe our host was catching the Wi-Fi from a nearby hotel. I have no idea how that would be even possible, but maybe it is true. But in any case, the fact that we had internet in our Airbnb in Cuba was still impressive. Interestingly, eBay does not exist in Cuba. And as I imagine, a lot of other sites do not too. Facebook does. And Amazon also is not blocked, but I suspect that it's not easy or even possible to have any card transactions online. Mostly, everywhere we went, there were no credit card machines available, so we mostly paid in cash. 
We also learned that if a couple of years ago going to all-inclusive resorts was forbidden to Cubans, nowadays they get special, much cheaper offers, and this is another one of Raul's reforms. They say, and we also saw, that internal tourism has boomed. As we were taking our day trips around the regions closest to Havana, again and again we crossed groups of Cubans who were also using the holidays for traveling. And speaking of holidays and New Year's, Having dinner on New Year's Eve in Havana can cost up to 250 CUC per person, maybe more in some places. We decided to go for a more modest option and booked a table in a small American diner. The food was okay, but the interior was really interesting. It was full of junk from before the revolution. Old American commercials, old Coca-Cola fridges, and there was just so much of everything posters that invite you to buy guns, and food was served on vinyls, which I thought was very interesting. And it was really fun to watch waiters maneuvering around all of these objects with their big platters while a live band was playing and competing in loudness with the music booming from the huge speakers installed next door. At the same time, unfortunately, we felt super rushed to get the hell out of there and give the space for the next customers. And that was an example of a private enterprise not being so great to its clients. But I guess such a thing is also not exclusive to Cuba, as everybody just wants to make a profit. <laughs> there were no fireworks, and New Year's in Havana seemed to be no big deal. Tourists were dancing in city squares to music from bars, and Cubans were dancing in the streets to the music of loudspeakers turned to the max in somebody's apartment. There is a tradition to throw water from the windows onto the street as a symbol of throwing out all the bad things from the previous year. I am not too sure that people who were waiting for tourists to pass by were interpreting the tradition correctly, because after midnight, the city became a labyrinth filled with traps. Maneuvering and avoiding any signs of wet streets, we got home dry, but half an hour later than expected. Our soaked neighbors, who entered the house at the same time that we, had not been so lucky. I think that now that they have access to internet, it probably won't take long for more changes to come to Cuba. Perhaps down the line, the country will also become more open to foreigners and their investments, but understandably they are cautious, because as we know, with foreign money comes foreign influence, and they know that better than anyone. It is also something that even affects us in Latvia, as we are not exactly happy when we see foreigners buying our companies. In case changes do come, I suggest for those who are interested in this country to pay a visit now, because this could be the last time you get to experience it the way it is, and get a taste of it the way it was. Another bit, Also, another reason to visit Cuba is if you're interested in art, because oh boy, There are so many examples of creativity that has flourished despite the hardships that the country and its people have had to face. The streets in the touristic part of Havana are full of art galleries that feature provocative, beautiful and unique paintings. They are not cheap. Most of them cost more than a Cuban doctor makes in a month. But still, they are well worth the money because, at least to me, they have so much cultural value attached. One that struck me particularly was the picture of the back of a retro car with woman's legs sticking out from under a trunk. It was called Night in Havana. And another one that I remember that was not for sale but that I saw in a bar which I went to was of a woman squatting above a toilet. 
It was a huge canvas painted kind of cubit style, and the barman revealed to me that the name of that painting was called No Paper, which, as we already figured out, is very relevant to Cuba. A lot of the art we saw and the music we heard was influenced by African aesthetics. Unsurprisingly, since more than a million of African slaves were brought to Cuba by the Spanish, a particularly interesting day was when we visited a cave in a place called Palenque de los Cimarrones. It is a cultural complex which holds a lot of relics from the colonial time in Cuba and especially African culture at the time. Its primary function is to show the living conditions of the Maroons, slaves who escaped their masters and took refuge in the caves and the mountains. Walking through the dark cave, I learned that they mostly survived off eating snakes and were always on alert, ready to protect themselves from anyone coming to recapture them. And there was also a restaurant on that complex that consisted of multiple tents that each had a differently colored ornament hanging from the ceiling. I learned that these colors represented the different gods worshipped by the devotees of the Santeria religion. In colonial times, it was forbidden for the African slaves to practice their native religion as Christianity was imposed upon them. But they resisted. They resisted in a very, very clever way. They fused African deities with Catholic saints in their minds, worshipping them like the Spanish did, but imagining them with their own god's characteristics. So the masculine African god Shango, for example, became Santa Barbara, a woman clothed in the red color associated with her fiery African counterpart. Babalu, the warrior god, was identified with the Catholic Saint Lazarus. This later developed into the religion known as Santeria. For those of you who for some reason also associated Cuban style with wearing all white, know that it's not a style choice at all. Actually, these people are most often initiates in Santeria and are required to wear white clothing for a year. White is also standard attire for people attending Santeria religious services. During the year of their initiation, they are also encouraged to minimize their contact with people who do not practice this religion. But uh, this aspect of Cuban culture often goes unnoticed by tourists, partly because of this huge secrecy surrounding it. I read somewhere that Cuban artists have a make-do attitude and I thought it was a very good description of the art that we saw because it truly shows in their street art and especially in what they called social projects. And we visited two such social projects. One can be found in Havana, a street called Calejón de Hamel, which is a project of an artist called Salvador González. In 1990, the artist began painting some murals with an Afro-Caribbean theme outside of his apartment in Hamel. Right now, it is a street-long open-air gallery, full of statues and paintings made out of household items, car parts, sinks, rocks, industrial machinery, everything and anything. The buildings are lined with brightly colored murals which depict rituals and deities of Santeria and quite possibly other religious influences and symbols that I could not decode. But honestly, you could walk around there for a week and you would probably still not have seen every little piece of artwork that was posted there. Especially because the space is buzzing with tourists and it also features equally richly decorated bars where if you go in, you could spend another day or two just looking at the interior of the bars. 
In one of such, we tried a drink that the waiter called the Father of Mojito, in which sugar is replaced by honey. I highly recommend that you try to make a version of it yourselves. It was delicious. And every Sunday around noon, rumba music takes over this neighborhood, which is an incredible experience that is made only a little bit less awesome by the also incredible amount of people that come to witness it. We were also told that the artist runs an art school for children in this neighborhood, which I also think is pretty awesome. And another such social project that can be found on the outskirts of Havana, a place called Fusterlandia. The artist, Jose Fuster, used colorful tiles to decorate first his own house, but then, upon request from his neighbors, other houses in his neighborhood. Now the whole neighborhood looks like a child's dreamland. Fuster is also a painter and his work has been compared to Picasso and it is said that the social project was inspired by Gaudi's public works in Barcelona where if you look at the pictures online you kind of see the resemblance. The main attraction is the artist's castle-like house which features galleries exhibiting his paintings. Our guide told us that when Fuster started his project the government was far from supportive and even tried to forbid him from continuing his work. Now, however, it aids the artist by supplying him with materials. Countless other galleries and souvenir shops have popped up close to the artist's house, so what was once a devastated neighborhood has turned into what some call an artist's paradise. Sadly, we did not see any concerts while we were in Cuba, but the beats of salsa music were with us every day. I would love to go back again and to discover more of Cuban music and learn to dance salsa, cha-cha and other local dances. Unfortunately, during our time there we did not have much time to go out and party, but on the bucket list for the next time. One trip is never enough. However, I hope that my description gave you an insight into this country that seemed to me to be so far mysterious and dangerous, but turned out to be very friendly and very welcoming if only a little bit happy to scam you at any chance. In terms of socialism, well, I'm not sure it's my place to pass judgments and I can only communicate what I saw and make educated guesses as to why things are the way they are. I understand those who wanted freedom from the influence of the USA. I am the person who values independence. But then the turn to socialism as it played out in Cuba was more of an entry into codependence with the Soviet Union and on terms that seem to have not played out in the interests of Cuba and its people. But anyway, it is a wonderful country. I highly recommend you go see it before it changes and also after it changes so you can make comparisons. And yeah, this is the end of my Cuba story. I hope you enjoyed listening and hopefully learning something from my adventures. Please feel free to leave a comment on our Facebook page, our homepage or our Discord channel. I'd love to hear what you guys think of our little experiment. Anyway, next week we're back to Stalin and more awesome stuff coming up this year. Thanks for listening and do свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective.
Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.